Would you join me now in prayer? Let's pray together. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, Father, would you give teachable hearts and teachable minds. Lord, we have just laid our burdens at your feet. We have cast away any distracting thoughts that make us anxious or fearful. They make us doubt in your goodness, your power, your love. And we claim the promise that you are our faithful Father. Oh, Lord, do not fail us in your promises. Lord Jesus, comfort us in the moments of our sorrows and pain. And Holy Spirit, help us to be attentive now. Strengthen us. Strengthen us physically, psychologically, spiritually in every way so that we could be fully um, receiving of today's word. And we ask, God, that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, back in 2013... Gallup did a study, a poll really, and discovered that over 70% of Americans today hate their job. According to one of the most extensive studies ever done two years ago, Gallup, over 70% of Americans hate their job today. A study goes on to say that worldwide, close to 87% of people who work in the global workforce hate their jobs today. That's a lot of people. Which means, chances are, I'm willing to bet that most, maybe all of you, at one point in your life or currently hate your job. And for those of you who are yet to work, chances are you are going to hate your job once you start working. Here's the question. Why do we hate our work so much? Why does it seem that we live in a time and age where as a culture, we just despise what we do for a living? Well, Forbes magazine tried to answer that question a couple months ago in an article that came out entitled, The Top Five Reasons Professionals Hate Their Job. And according to their article, they listed the five following reasons why people hate their job. Reason number one, the skills they need to use to succeed in their job feel difficult and uncomfortable for them. The rampant toxicity or crushing demands exhaust and depress them. Number three, the outcomes they're working on feel either meaningless or wrong. Number four, they sense they're made for something much better, more meaningful, and more exciting. And finally, number five, they long to use different talents and leverage their creativity and ingenuity, but have no idea how to do that and make the money they need. According to Forbes, those are the top five reasons why most professionals today hate their jobs. And after listing these five reasons, Forbes goes on to say these very interesting words, quote, In short, they, professionals, know what they don't want, but they have no idea what they do want or how to get it. In other words, most people today who are working know the kinds of jobs they hate, but they have no idea the kinds of jobs that they would love to do. We're continuing our sermon series entitled METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the five crucial ministries God calls every Christian to serve as his ministers. You see, the Bible tells us that it's not only ordained pastors like me and Pastor James who do ministry. No, the Bible tells us every Christian, every disciple of Jesus is called to be a minister. And for the past few weeks, we've been lingering on the fourth category of ministry that God calls us to serve as his ministers, and that is our ministry to the world through our occupation. We started off looking at why we work as Christians, then we looked at how we should work as Christians. Well, today, we're going to take a look at what kind of work we should do in light of our Christian faith. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. What kind of work should we do in light of our Christian faith? Now, before I go on, 
Now let me be clear on something because I don't want you to have false expectations about this sermon. This sermon is not going to teach you some magic formula that you can just apply in your life so you can figure out your ideal job, okay? And the reason why this sermon is not going to do that is because the Bible doesn't do it. You know, I meet a lot of up-and-coming young professionals, and they sometimes treat the Bible like it's some sort of complex computer where if you just, you know, look it up, it'll spit out some magical algorithm that will figure out your best ideal job, your perfect job. Hear me when I say this before I go on any further. There is no such thing as an ideal job. There is no such thing as a perfect job. You know, it just doesn't exist. Just like there's no such thing as that ideal person who you hope will marry someday. You know, the one. There is no such thing as the perfect spouse. And there is no such thing as a perfect job. Okay? The Bible tells us there is no such thing as the one in terms of our occupation. Which means what? It means there is a lot of freedom and there is a lot of possibilities that you as a follower of Jesus could legitimately pursue as your occupation. And God would be pleased with any one of those possibilities that you decide to pursue as a vocation. Now, when you hear that, that might not encourage you. In fact, quite the opposite. That may discourage you because it doesn't seem to answer the fundamental issue that we're facing as a society, which is we don't need, we can't figure out what kind of work that we would love to do. Well, if that's how you feel, I have good news. Because even though the Bible doesn't spit out some magical formula to figure out your perfect ideal job, it does give us a set of parameters. It does give us a set of criteria to where if we apply it, we can avoid the jobs that we would hate. And we can enjoy the freedom of the possibilities of jobs we could pursue that we would love and therefore be a blessing to those around us. So... In order to take a look at that and study that, we're going to take a look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as we do, we're going to see three criteria the Bible gives us that we need to consider when we want to consider what kind of job we should do in the world. Okay? First, criteria number one, do work that makes you quiet. Do work that makes you quiet. Criteria number two, do work that meets a real need. Do work that meets a real need. And finally, criteria number three, Do work that goes to unexpected places. Do work that makes you quiet. Do work that meets a real need. And do work that may take you to unexpected places. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, do work that makes you quiet. Let's skip down and read a cross section of our passage in the middle of verse 10 up until the middle of verse 11 where Paul writes these words. He says this, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Now, I actually don't like this translation of the Bible that we're reading, the ESV. I normally do, but in this instance, I do not like it because of the way that it translates the original Greek that Paul wrote this letter in. I actually prefer how the NIV translates Paul's words. So let me read to you this passage again in the NIV translation. Listen to what it says. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What in the world do you mean, Paul? What does that mean, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life? Specifically, what does that phrase, to lead a quiet life, even mean? And specifically, what does that have anything to do in figuring out the kind of job that is right for you? Well, in order to answer those questions, we need to understand what Paul means by that word, ambition. Ambition. What does it mean to have ambition? What does it mean to have ambition? Now, you know, as New Yorkers... 
we kind of know what ambition is because we're constantly surrounded by it. We're constantly bombarded by it with our coworkers, with our classmates. We are bombarded by ambitious people in this city all the time. But I ask you, what does it actually mean? What is the defining understanding of what it means to have ambition? Well, I actually like this definition that was once given by President John Adams, our second president of the United States, he wants to find ambition this way. Listen to what he says. He says this, quote, Ambash, ambition, ambition excuse me, is the natural passion for distinction, a desire to be seen, heard, talked of, approved, and respected by the people about him. Ambition is the natural passion for distinction, a desire to be seen, heard, talked of, approved, and respected by the people about him. In other words... Ambition is the desire to be distinguished so that you could be observed by everyone around you with high approval and high esteem. That is what ambition is. Now, when you realize that, you get even more confused when Paul says the phrase, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, because those seem like two opposing ideas. Because when we imagine a person who is ambition, ambitious, right, someone who is passionate about being noticed, observed, and admired, You don't normally think of a quiet person. A quiet person, by definition, seems like the polar opposite of an ambitious person. There was a recent article that came out a couple months ago in the Huffington Post entitled, On Being Quiet and Asian. (laughs) On Being Quiet and Asian. The author of this article is an Asian woman. And the article is basically talking about the stereotypes that is common among Asians as being, quote-unquote, quiet people. And in her article, she lists out some of the common phrases that she heard over and over about the stereotypes of Asians being so quiet, such as the following. The quiet Asians are always studying and they take the best seats in the library. Or the quiet Asians never hang out with anyone else. Or the Asians never talk in class. It's so creepy. The author goes on to say that when she was a freshman in college, she went to a house party, and I guess one of her classmates figured out it was her, and he yelled across the room, Hey! One of the quiet Asian kids actually made it to the party! What's the point? The point is, living a quiet life does not seem possible if you want to be an ambitious person. How could you possibly be passionate about being seen, heard, and approved when at the same time the people around you don't even notice you whenever you're around? It just seems that what Paul is saying with this statement of being ambitious for a quiet life is an oxymoron. It's, it's It's a contradiction. It just seems impossible. Or is it? Take a listen to this quote from Pastor Tim Keller. This is from his book, Every Good Endeavor, because I think it helps us understand what Paul is saying. He says this, quote, We all work for, for an audience, whether we are aware of it or not. Some perform to please parents, others to impress peers, others to win over superiors, while many do what they strictly, while many do what they strictly do to live up to their own standards. All of these audiences are inadequate. Working for them alone will lead to overwork or underwork, sometimes a mixture of the two, based on who is watching. But Christians look to an audience of one, our loving Heavenly Father, and that gives us both accountability and joy in our work. Now, what is Keller saying? He is saying that you are to be ambitious in your work so that God could notice you, so that God would be captivated by you, so that God would even applaud you rather than having other people around you be captivated by you or notice you or applaud you. 
Or if I could put it this way, be ambitious through your work so that you would be famous in the eyes of God, not famous in the eyes of man. That is what Paul is saying when it comes to living a quiet life, being ambitious for God to notice you, but quietly to where no one else around you would notice you. You see, this is the first criteria as followers of Jesus we need to think about when we consider the kind of work that we should do in this world. You see, most people, when they consider the kind of work that they should do, one of the ways they figure it out is by asking the following sense of questions. For example, what kind of work will get my parents' approval? What kind of work will get the admiration of my peers? What kind of work could attract a certain type of person I would like to marry? What kind of work will get the respect I want from society so I could live in a certain neighborhood, live in a certain part of the city, have a certain lifestyle. Many people try to determine the kind of work they should do based on the kind of attention and approval they want from those around them. But Paul says, do not do that. Do not use it as a criteria. Instead, do the opposite. Do a job that will make you live a quiet life to where the only applause you care about, the only observation that you yearn for is God's observation of you to where he takes delight in what you do. Now, if you're here investigating Christianity, you're hearing all this, and you're like, you know what? I don't really understand this, pastor. What's the big deal if people choose to do a kind of job that will get their parents' approval? What's so wrong of deciding the kind of work you're going to do if it could attract a potential mate? What's so wrong of choosing a kind of job that is respectable in society to where you would be honored and, and that you would be recognized? What's so wrong with that? Or if I could put it this way, what's so special, Pastor, about living a quiet life? Well, go back to that quote, please, from Tim Keller. In this quote, he tells us what happens to the quality of your work when all you care about is the applause of people rather than the applause of God? You fall into two dangers. Do you see it? You will either overwork or you will underwork, which in both instances results in the same thing. The quality of your work will be poor. You will not work as good as your work can be. In other words, by not living a quiet life, your work will not be great. And this is something that even secular business leaders have recognized already. In his New York Times best-selling book, Good to Great Business Guru Jim Collins, talks about what makes companies the best of the best, right? What makes these companies that are the greatest set apart from every other good company out there? And one crucial non-negotiable element that he says is crucial for a company to be great, to be the best, is what he calls level five leaders. Level five leaders are the CEOs, the chairman of the boards who are considered the best of the best, the best workers in society. And interestingly, he found a common pattern from all these level five workers. Take a listen to what it says in terms of what he discovered. He says this, we were struck by how the good to great leaders, level five leaders, didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they talk about the company and the contributions of other executives, but would deflect discussions about their own contribution. And it wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with the good to great leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild manner, self-effacing, understated, and so forth. The 11 good to great CEOs in our studies are some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century, yet despite their remarkable results, almost no one ever remarked about them. They were seemingly ordinary people, 
quietly producing extraordinary results. The most successful, the most extraordinary leaders and workers in our society, according to Collins, are those who live a quiet life, which simply means they don't care whether they get applause, whether they get noticed, whether they get accolades from the work that they do from other people. And if you think about it, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because if you're one of those people where you are obsessed with what other people think of you through your work, you know what that means? That means you're not going to be considering the work itself. You're only going to be considering of what the work can do for you. In other words, you don't see the value of work in work itself. You see the value of work from what the value can be attributed to you through that work to where the only thing that you will see important about your work is if your work can make you look important. But conversely, if you don't care about those things, if you just don't care about the applause of others, you don't care about how important you look through your work, that means what? You can focus on the work itself. Right? You can focus on making your work the best possible work, regardless of what return the work may give to you in the form of applause, in the form of accolades, in terms of being observed and applauded by everyone else. In other words, you don't look for work that makes you look important. You look for work that is important. And to further explain what I mean by that, let me go to my next point. Do work that meets a real need. Let's read again the latter half of verse 10 and all of verse 11 where Paul goes on to say, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you. Now, to fully understand what Paul is saying in these verses, you have to know a little bit about the background that Paul is writing to, to this church in Thessalonica. I actually talked about this last week in my sermon, but just in case you weren't here or just in case you completely forgot what I said last week, let me kindly remind you of what I said, okay? According to New Testament scholars, the Christians in Thessalonica believed that Jesus' second coming, also known as the apocalypse, was right around the corner. And you know how high school seniors, how in the last week of high school, they have no desire to do any work in classroom because they think it's pointless? Well, these Thessalonians thought, hey, these are the last few days of human history, so why bother? Why should I work, right? They were like the proverbial seniors graduating from high school, right? Hey, we're about to graduate into the new heavens and new earth. Why should I bother working when this reality is going to end, right? That was their mindset, and so they were lazy. They had a lazy work ethic by not doing any work whatsoever, and they did two things as a result. First, they mooched off of other people, right, sending a bad witness to a non-Christian world. And number two, you know what else they did? They spent their time getting in each other's business, gossiping, creating drama for their own entertainment. And if you remember what I said last week, the Thessalonians had this lazy work ethic because they made a faulty assumption about their view of God. And what was that assumption? It was the assumption that says, God does not care about this world. The Thessalonians had a faulty assumption in thinking that God, the creator, does not care about this world. So that when Jesus comes back and ushers in judgment day, he's just going to burn up everything, including the fruits of our labor, to make way for the new heavens and the new, new earth. Excuse me. But look again at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, mind your own affairs and what? Work with your hands. By making that statement, what is Paul doing? He is refuting this assumption that so many Christians make today and the Thessalonians made today, namely that God does not care about this world, including the fruits of our labor. No. No, 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 says Paul. 
Paul says, no, God loves this earth very much. And because he loves this earth so much, he truly values all the work that people do to make the earth even better before there was work. Let me say that again. God loves this earth very much. And because he loves the earth so much, he values all the work that people do that make the earth even better than it was before the work. See, and that right there is the second criteria you need to consider when you determine the kind of work that you do, okay? Because according to the Bible, God created us to work so that we could make the earth better than it was before the work existed. Which means what? It means when you consider what your next job is going to be, when you're considering what you're going to do after graduating college, one of the prevailing questions that you need to be asking is this question. Is this job that I'm considering actually meeting a real need in the world? Is this work that I'm going to try to do going to make this world a better place than it was before this work is done? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor John, that's such a broad question, right? That's so open-ended. How in the world could I even figure out a specific kind of answer to that broad question? Well, don't worry, because I want to tell you of a very great resource that could help you distill a more specific answer to that very broad question. There is a fantastic book, an amazing book, entitled, What Color Is Your Parachute? Anyone heard of that? What Color Is Your Parachute? It was written by a pastor by the name of Richard Bowles. And in this book, Bowles identifies for us eight values or eight ways to which you can make the world better through the work that you do. Okay? And it's interesting, the way he describes or categorizes these values is by different parts of the body or different categories of work. Let me read it to you and follow along and see if there's anything that resonates with you. First, there is the category of the mind. Is the human mind your concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more knowledge, truth, or clarity in the world because you are here? If so, what kind of knowledge, what kind of truth or clarity in particular? Body. Is the human body your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more wholeness, fitness, or health in the world? More binding up of the body's wounds and strength? More feeding of the hungry, clothing of the poor because you were here? If so, what issue concerning the human body do you want to work on? Eyes and other senses. Are the human senses your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more beauty in the world because you were here? If so, what kind of beauty entrances you? Is it art, music, flowers, photography, staging, crafts, clothing, jewelry, or what? that you want your life to contribute towards. Heart. Is the human heart your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more love and compassion in the world because you were here? If so, love or compassion for whom or for what? The will or the conscience. Is the human will or conscience your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be more morality, more justice, more righteousness, more honesty in the world because you were here? Entertainment. When you are gone, do you want there to be more lightening up of people's loads, more giving them perspective, more helping them to forget their cares for a spell? Do you want there to be more laughter in the world and joy because you were here? Possessions. Is the often false love of possessions your major concern? When you are gone, do you want there to be better stewardship of what we possess as individuals, as a community, as a nation, in the world because you were here? Do you want to see simplicity, savings, and a broader emphasis of the world's enough rather than on the word more? The word enough rather than on the word more? And then finally, the earth. Is the planet on which we stand your major concern? When you're gone, do you want there to be more protection of this fragile planet, more exploration of the world, 
or the universe, exploration, not exploitation, more dealings with his problems and its energy because you are here? If so, which problems or challenges in particular draw your heart and soul? Now, chances are, as this list was being read out to you, you resonated with probably more than one. And you're like, okay, that's a lot to go off on, and I have a list of other things. I like head, I like will, you know, I like entertainment, so what do I do? Well, in that moment, then you have to filter it out with three other categories, right? And I get these three categories from Tim Keller, and those categories are affinity, ability, and opportunity. Affinity, ability, and opportunity. Let's quickly go through them. First, affinity. Affinity is basically asking yourself, what do I like to do? Do I like to teach? Do I like advocating for the oppressed? Do I like making pies? Do I like making sculptures? Affinity is the inspiration, attraction, and excitability you have to a certain activity. What sort of activity excites you and inspires you? Okay. Once you have that figured out, you have to think about then ability. Ability is basically asking yourself, what am I good at? And what do other people say I'm good at? Okay, you can't forget that second part because sometimes you think you're good at something and other people say no, okay? So think about what am I good at and what has other people confirmed that I'm good at, right? Am I good at cooking? Am I good at organizing events? Am I good at delivering a speech? Ability refers to the gifts, talents, and skills that you have. And then finally, there is opportunity. Opportunity is basically asking yourself, hey, given the circumstances of my life, given the job market, Given the condition of the economy, my other responsibilities that I have to family and friends, what options are available for me? See, when you consider those eight values that Bull listed out and you see a huge list of endless possibilities, if you filter that out with these three categories of affinity, ability, and opportunity, chances are you'll be able to single out a particular need that you have an affinity for, a need you have an ability to meet, as well as a need that you currently have the opportunity in fulfilling right now in your present moment. Now, at this point, we could probably end the sermon because I just gave you a lot to chew on, right? This is a lot of content. But you know what? We're not done yet because Paul gives us one final criteria that we need to consider in determining what kind of work we should do. And this leads me to my last point. Do work that goes to unexpected places. Let's read verses 9 to the middle of verse 10. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, when you read these verses, you probably think this has nothing to do with the topic of the sermon, right? What does all this talk about love brotherly love have anything to do in trying to figure out what kind of job that you should be doing. It just seems irrelevant, but it's not. And the reason why it's not is because of that city that Paul names in verse 10, the city of Macedonia. You guys ever heard that phrase, location, location, location? Right? You've heard that. It's New Yorkers. You hear it all the time. Trump probably says it all the time. Location, 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 right? What does that mean? It means the best real estate is always in the best locations. Now, some people take that idea and they apply it to work, where a lot of people think that the best jobs are in the best locations. Hence, why do people come to New York City all the time, right? A lot of people assume that the best places to work are the place that have 
the best locations, which conversely means the places that you should never go to when considering a job are the places that are not as attractive, not as good, not as premier in terms of location. But the fact that Paul refers to Macedonia refutes that very idea. Let me explain why. In the book of Acts, it chronicles the different missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. And in chapter 16... There's an interesting incident that's recorded for us. In chapter 16, Paul is getting ready to begin his second missionary journey. And as he's thinking about where he needs to go next, as he's trying to think about the best place for him to go to do his work as a missionary, he strategizes, he thinks about like, okay, where can I go with a person of my gift sets, with my abilities? What's the best place? Where's the location I should go? He thinks, ah, I'm going to go to Asia. And just when he's about to execute and go to Asia, something happens. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then, coming up to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Now notice in this passage, Paul is thinking about what's the best place to go. I know, I'm going to go to Asia. God says, eh, you're not going. Like, okay, God, second best choice. Bithynia. God says no. So now he's like, wait a minute. Why can't I go to these places? And so he's stuck in the seaport of Troas, and he doesn't know what to do. It takes a supernatural intervention of God in the form of a vision to basically say, go to Macedonia. Here's the question. How come Paul didn't figure that out on his own? Why was Macedonia not even on his list of places where he even considered of going to do his work as a missionary? The only possible answer is, for whatever reason, he didn't want to go. He wasn't attracted to Macedonia. He didn't consider Macedonia to be a significant enough place for him to go there. For all intents and purposes, Macedonia was simply not sexy enough for Paul, for a person of his stature, his caliber, his, his gifts. You know, and many people today have that same mindset. Many Christians today have that same mindset. You know, we live in New York City, as I said before, right? And we are a city where we apparently attract the best and the most gifted and the most talented, right? And if you can make it here, that means you're somebody because if you want to thrive, you have to be the best. And so it attracts all the people with all the ambition saying, you know, I want to show how good I really am. I'm going to go to the best place to show off that I can make it there. But ask yourself, in light of what our scripture says in Acts 16, do you think God thinks that way? Let me read to you a quote from Pastor James Boyce, a very prominent pastor who passed away many years ago. He says this, quote, each person must answer to his or her master individually. That means we must ask God what his will for us is. Remember that God may direct you to use your talents, even talents of an extraordinary nature in humble surroundings and for the good of very simple people. Listen, just because you are exceptionally gifted, just because you are incredibly talented, doesn't mean that you belong in Manhattan. 
Just because you are the best in your field, just because you are the most gifted on the earth, doesn't mean that you should go to the best places, best locations, the best cities of the world. Sometimes God may call you to a place that you would never consider going. Places that you may even think are not worthy of you, not worthy of your talent, not worthy of your gifts. And the question is why? Why would God do that? Why would God seem to squander these gifts that he's given me by taking me to a place where people would not appreciate, acknowledge, notice the caliber of the gifts that we have? To where we would be amongst people that wouldn't even appreciate what we do. Read again verse 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Love. Brotherly love. That's why. According to Paul, God may call you to a certain job, not because it's the best place to work, not because it's where your gifts and talents can be best noticed and recognized, but because of the unique people that you will be able to uniquely reach and uniquely love. One more time. According to Paul, God may call you to a certain job, not because it's the base, best place to work, not because it's where your gifts and talents can be best noticed and recognized, but because of the unique people you will encounter, unique people you could love. Tim Keller gave an amazing tweet not too long ago on his Twitter. Pastor James put it on his Facebook, so I kind of stole it from him. But I guess it's not his to steal. It's Tim Keller's, right? Tim Keller tweeted this. There are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. That right there says it all. And if you think about it, that's so profound. God gives you the passions, the gifts, and the talents, and the opportunities to work a certain job so that why? You could ultimately love and bless certain unique individuals. Isn't that profound? You know, and for us Christians, when we hear this, this should not surprise us. Why? Because of the gospel. What does the gospel teach us? The gospel teaches us the good news that says, the God of the universe who deserves all praise, all honor, all admiration, came into the world to do a quiet work. A work that no one would notice. So that he could meet the greatest need for humanity, salvation from sin, and he did this work by going to the most remote, obscure place that no one ever notices. Why? So that he could love us with a forgiving love, a transforming love, an eternal love, and yes, brotherly love. When Jesus began his work, his ministry, over and over people would ask, who is that guy? Who is this Jesus? At one point his siblings even said, Who do you think you are, Jesus, to claim that you are the Messiah, to do this work that you're doing? You know, for us, it's hard to imagine because Jesus is basically internationally known. Everyone knows Jesus. But back when Jesus was walking on this earth, no one knew who he was. Before he died on the cross, and even after he died on the cross, no one knew of him. He lived a quiet life. And not only that, when Jesus did his public ministry, he actually did all of the eight values that Bowler talks about in his book. 
Let me show you. He did the work of the mind. He was a teaching rabbi. He did the work of the body by healing people. He did the work of the eyes and senses by transfiguring himself as a beautiful light where Peter, James, and John were overwhelmed by it. He did the work of the heart by feeding the poor and healing the sick. He did the work of the conscience by rebuking the Pharisees and other repressive religious leaders. He did the work of entertainment by turning water into the best wine at a wedding party. He did the work of possessions by challenging people to not be greedy and to give to the poor. He did the work of the earth by rising again in a physical body to show that this earth that we're standing on now will continue on when he comes back again. Jesus did the work of every possible work out there and why? So that he could love us with brotherly love like Paul eventually loved the Macedonians. A group of people that Paul initially thought was not worthy of him. Brothers and sisters, When you consider the kind of work that you should be doing as followers of Jesus, be sure that you do not forget this final criteria of being willing to go to unexpected places because it's in those places you will find people who initially may seem irrelevant to you, unattractive, unworthy of you, and yet they will be the very people who you will love deeply, who you will serve, who you may even give your life for, just like Jesus loved you when you were irrelevant, when you were unattractive, when you were really unworthy of him. When you understand that, then it will be crystal clear the kinds of occupations that you should pursue because whatever you pursue in that moment, you will be like your master, Jesus Christ. What should you consider when you think about the kind of work that you should do. Consider work that will make you quiet. Consider work that will meet a real need. And consider work that may take you to unexpected places where only you can uniquely love people that everyone else can never get to. Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more about this complex issue of work, Father, we need your continued grace and mercy. Father, so many of us have been using the wrong criteria for years in choosing our current occupation or considering our future occupation. But Father, I do pray that today's message will really be eye-opening for us and helping us understand how, as followers of Jesus, we should consider the criteria that your word gives us. Not so that we could search for that perfect ideal job for we know it doesn't exist, but to search for an occupation that brings blessing to the world, a kind of occupation that imitates the work of your son, Jesus Christ, when he came to love each and every one of us. Father, the work of Christ has reached us. And Father, we pray that our work will reach certain individuals that will bring blessing to their lives that no one else can. Father, would you help us to move forward in considering our lives as your servants, so that we would choose work that would truly show the glory of your magnificent love and the power of your gospel. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.